This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about the maid of Orléans who was on a mission from God to save the kingdom of France. Welcome back to Historical, my dear listeners. April was just another month in quarantine, so I don't have much to report on that end, except that right now I'm playing a rousing game of is it allergies or is it coronavirus? So that's been fun. My kid is home for the rest of the school year. My husband is baking to a degree that I've had to up my exercise by a lot. And even that, I don't think is going to cut it. So I'm definitely going to be sticking with dresses and jumpsuits this summer. But I hope you're all doing okay and able to find some levity during some truly challenging times. Just as a reminder, I have a new Facebook group for those interested in talking about books, history, and or perfume. It's called Potions and Paperbacks with Immortal Perfumes, and you can find the link to join in the show notes. Our first book club is on May 13th, so get on that if you want to participate. The book is Wife After Wife by Olivia Hayfield. And I posted about that on Instagram and Olivia Hayfield actually responded and I was so excited. I had absolutely no chill. So she probably thinks I'm crazy. Anyway, let's get to today's subject. Joan of Arc, patron saint of France. When I was a kid in the mid to late nineties, Joan was having a moment and there were several movies that came out about her. I'll talk more about that in the recommendation section, but the movie The Messenger with Mila Jovovich really spoke to me as a kid. I grew up Catholic, but even back then I wasn't a good one, too opinionated, and so it was fascinating for me to see her story play out. What happened to her definitely cemented my feelings about not going too deep into the Catholic pool, but I also felt a connection with her because St. Michael was one of the saints she said talked to her, and he was my confirmation saint. It's a whole long, hilarious story that involves a priest putting his hands on me and convulsing, but my parents made me go to confirmation classes and I insisted St. Michael be my saint and the nun was scandalized that I would choose a man. I chose him because when I was a kid, I was so freaking bored in church, but there was a stained glass of St. Michael with a sword and the devil at his feet. So I was like, okay, I can get behind that. So yeah. That's why I was interested in Joan of Arc as a kid, and I'm very happy to report that after researching her for this episode, she's even more fascinating now that I'm an adult. Did she really talk to angels? Was she actually schizophrenic? Was she just a girl who wanted to join the army and saw an opportunity? Why did they give a young peasant girl an entire army? So many questions, all of which have extremely complicated and ambiguous answers. I know from my stats that you, my dear listeners, enjoy stories of strong females with tragic ends, so get settled and imagine yourself in a garden when all of a sudden you're overtaken by a blinding white light and voices whispering what your destiny holds. Chapter 1. The War of a Hundred Years and the Glass King We usually start these off by examining the parents, but when it comes to Joan of Arc, we have to go even further back. We're talking almost 400 years before she was born. 
To understand where Joan fit in in history, we have to take things all the way back to 1066 when the Normans conquered England. And just a little side note here, this episode is going to have a lot of rabbit holes that you can go down. Don't forget to check the show notes if there's something specific you want to learn more about. But back to the invasion. In 1066, the Duke of Normandy, who you also know by the name William the Conqueror, invaded and conquered England. He had a claim to the English throne as a relative of Edward the Confessor, who left no heirs and had just recently died. What this did was basically intertwine the royal families of England and France in that the English royals now had French blood, so both sides could claim the other's throne. Now, France was the golden child of Europe. Everything trendy came from France. They had the most power. They also were the first European nation to convert to Catholicism. They were even called the eldest daughter of the church. Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman Emperor. France was like, we are literally holier than thou. All of this will come into play later. Okay, so France is super powerful and sets the tone for everything. England was kind of the upstart little brother who was second in power, but wanted a bigger place in the spotlight. Now, the English royal family had French blood dating back to William the Conqueror, and many members of the nobility also had ties to France. What this meant was that all these English nobles also had lands and power back in France. So for 300 years, you have this kind of simmering jealousy on the part of the English They're wanting to be top dog, and you've got the Plantagenets, which was the royal family of England, just waiting for the opportunity to claim power in France. On the French side, you've got the House of Valois, who are like, England, you guys need to chill because you are just our vassals. To teach you a lesson, we're going to redistribute your lands. And thus it went on until 1328, when Charles IV of France died. Now, in England... Edward III was king, and his mother was Isabella of France, Charles IV's sister. So she and her son were like, hey, we've got the claim right here. But the French people were like, nope, you can't pass on the kingship from a lady. Think of it like Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice or Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey, obscure relative who gets to take everything all because the ladies weren't given legal power. I roll. So instead, the throne of France went to Philip, the Count of Valois. And Philip was like, Edward, I'm going to go ahead and take your lands in France for your insolence. So Edward was like, well, all right, I'm actually the king of France now too, and I am going to invade you. So he sent his son, Edward, the Black Prince, whom I'm sure you've heard of, at least from a knight's tale with Heath Ledger, if nowhere else. And he was actually a pretty awesome commander, and they took over a lot of lands in France. And this is how the Hundred Year War started. And fun fact there, it was actually 116 years. Okay, that was the beginning. All the way back in freaking 1337, for reference, Joan of Arc, our subject today, if you forgot, was not born until circa 1412. We're going to skip ahead now to the main events of the Hundred Years War that led Joan on her path to battle. Charles VI became king when he was 11 years old. He could have gotten rid of his regents when he was 14, but he was like, "Mm, no, until he was 21 years old. During this time, his uncles, a crew of dukes, were in charge of the country. But they were terrible at being in charge and kept stealing money from the treasury, so the country was in financial ruin. The main duke in charge was Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. You will definitely want to remember Burgundy. 
Charles was married to Isabeau of Bavaria, and the two were young and good-looking, and the people of France loved them. He became known as Charles the Beloved, and as soon as he kicked his uncles to the curb, things started improving. He and his wife, over their long marriage, had 12 children, many of whom didn't survive. But then, just as suddenly as things had improved, Charles had his first incident, to put it mildly, in what became a lifelong struggle with mental illness. Charles was traveling to Brittany on a military expedition with a group of knights. He had a fever and was extremely agitated because of their slow journey. At one point, a creepy dude kind of just jumped out of a bush and grabbed at him and told him not to ride further because he was betrayed. So that set him extra on edge. Then a page dropped a lance, which hit some armor, so the equivalent in sound of a gunshot, I guess, and Charles flipped his lid and ended up murdering four of his own knights. After the carnage, he went into a coma. And for the next 42 years that he was king, he had periods of normalcy when everything was totally fine, and then periods where he would disappear from public for six months because he believed he was St. George, or that his body was made of actual glass. I'm going to do a footnotes episode on this because it is really fascinating. Isabeau frequently had to take over as regent during these periods of madness, and one such happened after the French's crushing defeat at the Battle of Agincourt by Henry V. All right, I was very excited to learn about Henry V here because I just watched The King on Netflix, and you should totally just pause this and go watch that. It's really good. Timothy or Timothy Chalamet, however you say his name, is Henry V. And then Robert Pattinson has the most ridiculous French accent. And it's just wonderful. If you watch that, you'll be on Team England. But today we're Team France. Sorry, England. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Long digression. So Henry V crushed it at Agincourt and over the next five years conquered more of France. In 1420, Isabeau, subbing in for Charles, signed the Treaty of Troyes, which married off their daughter, Catherine of Valois, who, side note, later had an affair with and then married Owen Tudor, and that's how we got Henry Tudor, aka Henry VII. So many connections in this episode, it's delicious. So they married off Catherine and disinherited their son, Charles of Valois, the Dauphin, and said that Henry would become king upon Charles VI's death. Except Henry died of dysentery two years later, and this was before Charles died. Henry VI was only one year old and was crowned king of both England and France, though the French part would remain disputed. Okay, so you've got the Duke of Bedford in England as his regent, and then over in France, you've got the Dauphin Charles, who is pretty mad that he got disinherited. Charles was about 19 at that point. Now, the last piece of the puzzle before we can actually get to Joan is this. During this entire time, so almost 100 years into this war, which again was actually a series of wars and lasted 116 years, there was also civil war in France where Burgundy was like, I hate you guys. We're going to side with the English when it suits us. You've also got the Black Death, just you know, taking out half the population. There were also prophecies widely known across the country that a young maiden from Lorraine would rise up and save the kingdom of France. There were several of them circulating, one attributed to Merlin, like the wizard Merlin, and then another to Marie du Avignon, who said a maid who is to restore France, ruined by a woman, shall come from the marches of Lorraine. Ruined by a woman was a diss on Isabeau of Bavaria for signing the Treaty of Troyes. 
So that, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. A formerly glorious kingdom hanging on for dear life as it fights off enemies both foreign and homegrown, and the prophecy that a young maiden from Lorraine would save her country. Chapter 2, The Voices. Thank you for sticking with me, dear listeners, because now we can get to the main event. Jeanne d'Arc was born circa 1412 in the village of Domremy in northeastern France in, you guessed it, Lorraine. She was known as Jeanne, so that's what I'll call her for the rest of the episode because I want to be respectful. It was a poor farming village, and whenever you hear about Jeanne, people make sure to describe her as an illiterate peasant. She was technically both, but one, she had quite the way with words, as we'll see in her dictated letters to the English, and two, they were poor, but her family was the wealthiest in the village. So to the other villagers, Jeanne was actually middle class. Her father, Jacques, was even sort of the mayor of the town. Her family owned about 50 acres of land, and so she helped her father tend to the livestock, and apparently she was a really good seamstress. She had three older brothers and one sister, though we don't know if her sister was younger or older than she was. Jeanne's mother is kind of important to Jeanne's later story. Her name was Isabel Romay, and she was very pious. She was in charge of her children's church education, and she was well-versed in the Catholic saints. We have this image of Jeanne as something of a loner, since she was so focused on her mission from God. But in her youth in Domremy, she had a good group of friends and was considered both pretty and popular. Now, amidst this idyllic country setting, remember, there's a civil war going on, and then the English keep charging in from time to time. This added a whole level of danger to the peasants living in Jean's village, as well as neighboring villages. This was because back in medieval Europe, there was no United Nations. Nothing was off bounds. Nothing was considered a war crime. The peasants were the ones who paid taxes to the crown. Enemies knew that all you had to do was attack the peasants and you'd starve the monarchy into submission. So this was the tactic of both the English and the Burgundians. So poor Jeanne and her family lived in constant fear that their village would literally be burned to the ground. It was a regular occurrence in the nearby villages, but in 1425, Dom was the target. The village was burned and all of their cattle stolen. It was the same year when Jeanne was about 13 years old that her real journey began. One day, when she was out in her father's garden, she was overcome by a brilliant white light, and St. Michael the Archangel appeared. Jean was overcome by fright, but he was kind to her and simply told her to be a good girl, say her prayers, honor her father and mother, that kind of stuff. Our girl was freaked out to say the least. She also had sense enough to know not to tell anyone, not even the priest, when she was at confession. After the first encounter, St. Michael was joined by St. Catherine and St. Margaret. And I'm going to do a whole historical footnotes episode on the stories of these saints because while I'm a terrible Catholic, I have always liked the stories of the saints. Like saints and nuns, those would be my picks in the pick and choose your religion model. They continued to say pretty benign stuff to her. Just be a good 15th century girl, you know? Over time, she stopped being afraid of them and kind of just accepted that they were there. Over the course of the next three years, however, she grew increasingly withdrawn from her friends and family, wanting to spend all of her time listening to and talking with her saints, or her voices as she called them. The more she withdrew, the more pious she became. She'd go to mass every day and seek confession multiple times per day. Even by uber-Catholic French standards in the 1400s, people were like, okay, you need to calm down a little bit. When she was about 15 or 16, the voices got quite a bit more specific. They told her that she had been chosen by God to go on a holy mission. Her mission, 
a mission given to a 16-year-old peasant girl in 1400s war-torn France, was to rid France of her enemies and crown Charles as the rightful king. You know, no big deal there. Not like there had been centuries of conflict around this. Around this time, Jeanne's father had arranged a marriage for her. Jeanne would have none of it. She literally went to court against her father and convinced them that she shouldn't be forced into marriage. So go her. Soon after, Jeanne finally told her family about the voices and her divine mission. Her dad was pretty pissed at her about the whole telling him off in court thing, but her other relatives, she was able to convince. The angels had told her that she needed to make it to a nearby town called Bocoulour, where she would find a man who would give her a military escort to Charles, who had his royal court in Chinon. She convinced her uncle, possibly behind her father's back, to take her to Vaucouleur to find this escort. And so it was in May of 1428 that Jeanne d'Arc arrived in Vaucouleur on the first leg of her divine mission to save the kingdom of France. Chapter 3, The Dauphin. When Jeanne arrived in Vaucouleur, she was dismissed immediately by the captain of the garrison. Like, I feel for the guy. You got this 16-year-old telling you to give her a military escort because she's going to save France from the English because God told her so. I don't blame him for not immediately believing her. She left and returned the following year to try again. This time, Jeanne immediately set to work getting the people of the town on her side. She would preach to anyone who would listen that she was the prophesied maid of Lorraine, and this was her mission. It was imperative that she get to Chinon to ensure that Charles was crowned king. Not only did she have the town people on her side now, she also was able to convince two soldiers to plead her case to the captain. Then she was able to convince the captain that her voices were legit because she correctly told him the outcome of the Battle of Rouvray several days before anyone made it to Vaucouleur with the news because, remember, no internet, no TV news. It took days, if you were lucky, to learn what was happening around the country. The captain finally gave in and gave Jeanne a military escort. The two knights she had befriended led the expedition to Chinon, and these two first gave her men's clothing to wear. Up till this point, she was still wearing traditional dresses. She cut her hair short and donned the men's clothing. This seemingly benign little tidbit is a big deal later on. It took them 11 days crossing enemy territory to make it to Charles's court in Chinon. Now, a little backstory here on Charles's life. So remember his mother, Isabeau, had essentially disinherited Charles to marry off Catherine of Valois to Henry V in an attempt at peace. History hates her for this, but like, it wasn't exactly her decision. She was signing because her husband backed out last minute because, you know, madness. Yolande of Aragon was the Duchess of Anjou and in around 1413 met with Isabeau to marry her daughter to Charles. Charles ended up staying with Yolande and her politics rubbed off on him. Charles had two older brothers and wasn't meant to become king. But when they died, Isabeau sent for him and badass Yolande responded with this little gem. We have not nurtured and cherished this one for you to make him die like his brothers or to go mad like his father or to become English like you. I keep him for my own. Come and take him away if you dare. Okay, so that's who he was living with. Very powerful woman who wants to see the Valois reclaim France. They knew that Jeanne was on her way to see him, and they weren't totally gullible and trusting of this prophecy. They decided to test her by making her find Charles in a room at Courtier's with him switching dress with someone else. This is the story anyway. It honestly was probably only like three people in the room. 
But nevertheless, Jean easily recognized Charles, and everyone was like, whoa, she knew who the Dauphin was without being told. She's magic. She had a private audience with Charles, and whatever was said, he trusted her after that point. The conversation is completely lost to history, unfortunately, but one of the theories put out is that she may have told him who his true father was. You see, I restrained myself and didn't take you down the rabbit hole of Isabeau of Bavaria, but she was accused of taking lovers, and Charles had the swirl of rumors of illegitimacy hanging over him his whole life. The theory is that Jean told him who his true father was, and he personally already knew this information and so trusted her. Yolande, meanwhile, had been making arrangements to send relief items like food to the city of Orléans, which had been under siege for months. She and Charles were like, well... Couldn't hurt to have this girl who believes she's on a holy mission go there and prove that she really was sent by God and can help lift the siege. But they wanted to take no chances. The English would obviously call her a witch, and if she succeeded and helped Charles get his crown, then there would be doubt again that he should actually be king. They wanted this whole thing to be airtight. So Charles decided to have her examined, both physically and mentally, by clergy and Poitiers. They had nuns verify with a physical check that she was indeed a virgin, and then priests test her to make sure, you know, she wasn't sent by the devil. Jeanne passed both exams with flying colors. Jeanne also prophesied at her examination that everyone would see her first sign from God at the siege of Orléans. Chapter 4, The Siege. Charles gave Jeanne a suit of white armor. The armor wasn't literally white. They just polished the hell out of it to the point that it was so shiny, she appeared dazzling. This was probably not an accident, as they really wanted to play up the notion that she really was sent by God. She herself commissioned a banner on the urging of the voices of St. Catherine and St. Margaret. Her banner was white and depicted God holding the world with two angels bearing witness. The last piece she needed before heading to Orléans was a sword. She told Charles that a sword would be found behind the altar in St. Catherine's Church in Fierbois. And of course, they found the sword right where she said it would be. Everyone was immediately like, another sign from God. These days, however, historians agree that if Jeanne herself didn't put the sword there as she had been through that town, it's more likely another soldier buried it there as that was a common custom and offering at the time. Regardless, Jeanne was now suited up and ready for battle. And we're talking like fervent here. She arrived with the food and other relief items and was absolutely livid when the commander had her meet on the other side of the river from where the English were camped and further frustrated when he insisted that they deliver their relief items to the city first. This commander was Jean de Orléans, who is better known as the Bastard of Orléans. So like, if you ever wonder where George R.R. R. Martin gets his ideas, look no further. He was an illegitimate son of Charles V, making him a half-cousin to Charles the Dauphin. So many Charles. The city of Orléans had been under siege since October of 1428, and Jean arrived on April 29th of 1429. Okay, so they had been battered. The morale was low. People were war-weary. And Jean de Orléans was like, WTF, I told my cousin to send me soldiers, and you send me this fanatical 16-year-old peasant girl. As such, he held strategy and council meetings without her, which threw her into a rage. He also insisted she go into the city and meet people and hand out the food. She didn't want to do that, but that was good advice because what it did was give the people and the soldiers hope. Like I said, the prophecy of the Maid of Lorraine was something all the French knew about, and seeing her here now, she became a symbol of hope and got them to believe that they could drive the English out. 
1429 is roughly 15 years after the humiliating defeat at Agincourt, and this was the point in which the English had conquered the most land in France in the entirety of the Hundred Years' War. Jeanne took it upon herself to send a message to the English. She dictated the following note and had an archer shoot it across to the English, and let's hear the message and just drink in the high levels of do-not-give-a-fuckness. King of England... And you, Duke of Bedford, who call yourself Regent of the Kingdom of France. You, William Pole, Count of Suffolk. John Talbot. And you, Thomas Lord Scales, who call yourselves lieutenants of the said Duke of Bedford. Make satisfaction to the King of Heaven. Surrender to the maid who is sent here by God, the King of Heaven, the keys of all the good towns which you have taken and violated in France. She has come here by God's will to reclaim the blood royal. She is very ready to make peace if you are willing to grant her satisfaction by abandoning France and paying for what you have held. And you archers, men at war, gentlemen and others who are before the town of Orléans, go away into your own country in God's name. And if you do not do so, expect tidings from the maid who will come to see you shortly to your very great harm. King of England, if you do not do so, I am a chieftain of war, and in whatever place I meet your people in France, I shall make them leave, and in whether they will it or not. And if they will not obey, I will have them all put to death. I am sent here by God, the King of Heaven, body for body, to drive you out of all of France. And if they wish to obey, I will show them mercy." And be not of another opinion, for you will not hold the kingdom of France from God, the King of Heaven, Son of Saint Mary. For the King Charles, the true heir, will hold it, as is revealed to him by the maid. He will enter Paris with a good company. If you do not believe these tidings from God and the maid, in whatever place we find you, we shall strike therein and make so great a tumult that none so great has been in France for a thousand years, if you do not yield to right." Know well that the king of heaven will send greater strength to the maid and her good men at arms that you in all your assaults can overwhelm. And by the blows, it will be seen who has greater favor with the God of heaven. You, Duke of Bedford, the maid prays and requests that you do not bring destruction upon yourself. If you will grant her right, you may still join her company where the French will do the fairest deed ever done for Christianity. Answer if you wish to make peace in the town of Orléans. And if you do not, you will be reminded shortly to your very great harm. <sighs> Just uh, the defiance gives me life. All right. So on May 4th, which if you're listening in real time today, the bastard of Orléans led the French to battle against the English, but didn't tell Jean it was starting. She was literally asleep, but was roused and she made a mad dash to the battle. Her presence immediately gave the French troops hope. She rode out into the middle of the battlefield in her white fucking armor with her white fucking banner, looking like St. Catherine herself. And all I can say here is adrenaline is a hell of a drug. They won the battle, and then Jean was kind enough to make the French victors spare the lives of the English they captured. Not content with this at all, though, the next day she was like, listen, bastard of Orléans, we're going back out there. The others were like, nah, girl, we should take a break. So it happened. 
she rounded up a whole bunch of townspeople who were like, oh, fuck yes, we want to fight. We want to drive the English out. And the commanders were like, oh my God, why have you brought this riffraff? They're not professional soldiers. And she's like, listen, St. Michael and Cruz said we would win. Let them fight. We're going to take this. And of course, that's what happened. So day two battle fought and won. On May 7th, they were back at it, but it was a long slog and they were winning, but not making a ton of progress. So Bastard of Orléans is like, you know what? We'll just finish things up tomorrow. Word of this got back to Jeanne and she rode off to have a powwow with her saints. Rode back and was like, this ends today, bitches. Grabbed a ladder and launched the attack on the wall herself. And sorry for the swearing there. I get very carried away with all this rah-rah stuff. So the others see what she's doing and are like, oh my God, we got to go stop this crazy girl. But the rest of the militia grabbed ladders too and started scaling the wall. Jeanne was hit by an arrow between her neck and shoulder. The English, of course, were like, yeah, die witch. And the French kind of faltered a bit as they got her out of there. But then that evening, she was back at the grind and they fought off the English in their entirety later that evening. Orléans was saved. And everyone believed that this was the sign that Jeanne really was sent by God and she would save them. She earned the respect of the other commanders and, of course, of the people who already viewed her as a saint. Chapter 5, The Coronation Okay, so step one of Joan of Arc's Rise and Grind plan was to save the city of Orléans. Check. Over the next month and a half, she went out to other battles and gave the generals advice and counsel, again, all based on information from her voices. And all of them ate this up and credited her with helping them win. Next, she had to escort Charles the Dauphin to the city of Rome for the coronation, which I'm 99% sure I'm mispronouncing, and it's actually spelled R-E-I-M-S. As always, anyone who speaks French, I'm very sorry for butchering your language. You see, the city of Rome was where all the French kings would be anointed for their coronations. Jean led the march to Rome with thousands of soldiers through heavy enemy territory, but they took most of the territory back along the way, and the site was mostly a power move to show that everyone was getting behind the Dauphin. Jean had a place of honor, and her parents were even invited. Charles made Jean and her family nobles, so Charles seemed to really hold her in high esteem. No longer the Dauphin, Charles VII was king, despite the claims of the young child king, Henry VI. He asked Jeanne what gift she would like in gratitude for her service to him in France. She asked that the poor farmers of Domremy not have to pay taxes. And he made good on that, because Domremy did not have to pay taxes up until the French Revolution. So, not bad. So everyone was happy for a time, but Jeanne became frustrated and angry. First, her voices stopped talking to her. They had been a focal point of her life for years, shaping her perception of reality and giving her purpose. And now they were just gone. Charles wanted to try his hand at diplomacy and was frustrated because Jean felt that they should keep fighting. And normally I'd be on the side of diplomacy. Like the fact that she was so into fighting sounds weird to me, especially as a religious person. Why would she want to keep fighting? But first off, Charles, it turned out, was really bad at negotiating, just as his mother before him had been. And again, remember, they're like 100 years into this 116-year-long war. No one trusts anyone. So it makes sense that she would think fighting was the only way forward. But without her voices to guide her, her troops faced multiple defeats, the worst one being at Paris. No one, not her voices, not Charles, had told her to go and try to reclaim Paris. She ended up getting injured, and nothing came of the rescue attempt. There was a brief truce with England, and with nothing to do, she spent a few months sending threatening letters to different enemies of different religions because she was hardcore Catholic. 
When the truce eventually broke, she went to Compagnon to aid in the fight against the Burgundians, which, if you've forgotten, the Burgundians were the French guys on the other side of the Civil War in France. These are the ones who don't support Charles. They were allied with the English, and during battle, Jeanne was thrown from her horse and captured by the Burgundians. She was imprisoned in a castle and tried multiple times to escape. One time, shockingly, she tried to kill herself by jumping from a window of the tower. She survived, and soon after, the English negotiated with the Burgundians to take her into custody. Chapter 6. A Trial, an Execution, a Canonization. So yeah, it was actually the French that caught Jeanne, but it was the wrong side of France. The English obviously wanted her dead. She had single-handedly humiliated them and put all the gains they had made into France in jeopardy. Plus, those badass messages sent by Archer? It's no wonder the sad little men had their feelings hurt by a lady. The thing was, they didn't want to just execute her. They wanted to humiliate the French and discredit the newly crowned King Charles VII so they could reclaim the crown for King Henry VI, who, remember, still a little kid. The best way to do this was to charge her as a heretic. The Spanish Inquisition was about 50 years away. So yeah, that's kind of the time period we're looking at. If you're a lady and you look at someone the wrong way, you're going to get burned at the stake. Charles VII, for his part, did nothing to negotiate to try to save Jeanne. In fact, despite all she had done for him, he tried to distance himself from her because he didn't want his claim to the crown jeopardized should they rule that she was in league with the devil. Jeanne was kept in awful, unsanitary conditions for months, to the point that she got very ill. They didn't want her to die before convicting her of witchcraft, so they finally went to trial. To ensure the trial went the way they wanted, they chose a bishop who was allied with the English. And then they broke pretty much all the rules of a fair trial under ecclesiastical law. They didn't give her legal counsel, and all the clerics in the jury were pro-English members of the clergy that had been brought in from the University of Paris. As if that weren't enough, they also kept her in a men's prison when she should have been put in the care of nuns. They brought up 70 charges against her, but since this was pretty extreme, they didn't want to start an even bigger conflict. They whittled it down to 12 charges, some of the most egregious being that she wore men's clothing, the veracity of her visions, and her refusal to obey the church. The trial went on for many weeks and was kind of similar to the test she had undergone when Charles was checking to make sure that she was legit. They asked questions that really should have only been asked scholars in attempts to trap her, but she was pretty witty and evaded them every time. For example, she started things off with this little gem. You say that you are my judge. Take care what you do, for in truth I am sent by God, and you put yourself in grave danger. She also told them that she'd tell the truth, but she wouldn't answer any questions about her visions or share information that she'd received from God. The Duke of Bedford, in another gross miscarriage of justice, was also on hand for the trial. They took her to the room that housed torture implements, and she replied with, In truth, if you tear my limbs apart and separate my soul from my body, I still won't tell you anything else. And if I tell you anything, later I will say that you forced it out of me. Growing increasingly frustrated, they took her outside and showed her the pyre at which she would be burned. People outside were ridiculing her, and by this point, she was sick, she was starving, she had been in prison almost a year. The bishop told her that this was her last chance to save herself, and if she didn't obey the church and abjure her entire testimony, he would hand her over to secular authorities. She agreed, so basically selling herself and her visions out, but Jesus, can you blame her? She signed a parchment, repenting everything, and they gave her a dress and promised both that she'd get to go to Mass and that the church accepted her admission and would welcome her with open arms. 
Well, that didn't sit well with the English. A few days later, she was found in her cell wearing men's clothing again. That was grounds for heresy as she was going back to the behavior she'd already recanted. Now, what most likely happened here was that the English guards took her clothing away and only left her with men's clothes. It's not like she just materialized men's clothing in her cell, unless the saints were really wanting her to burn. Her option would have been to remain naked in a men's prison, like... Not that clothing will stop a rape, but it's a deterrent to some degree, so obviously she put the clothes on. The church couldn't save her now, lest they go against their own rules, so she was taken to the stake at Rouen, May 30th, in 1431. An English soldier took pity on her and made a little wooden cross that she was able to hold in her pocket, and a priest raised a cross so that she'd be able to see it as she died. Once it was over, they showed people her remains, then re-burned her several times and scattered her ashes in the sign. They were very afraid of leaving behind relics. They wanted people to know she was dead, but that didn't stop people from claiming to be her for the next several decades. Now here's the part where her mother comes into play. So her mom was largely absent from her life when she went off to battle, but thanks to her mother's efforts, 20 years after her death, she was given a retrial on the order of Charles VII. Many witnesses were called, including the soldiers who served with her. This is how we know so much about her and exact things she said. For the Middle Ages, it was extremely rare to have records this good. Her soldier friends talked of her as a little sister. Everyone felt loyal to her and had a duty to protect her. She literally slept on the battlefield with these men, and no one ever touched her. In fact, they told stories of her chasing prostitutes out of the camps with her sword and yelling at the men for swearing. 20 years after her death, she was found to be not guilty. Charles, who got his crown thanks to her efforts, ruled until his death in 1461. His early years were marked by incompetence. However, once he got into his groove as king, he was able to reclaim all the lands lost during the Hundred Years' War and saw its end. He also ruled over a time of relative prosperity. Jean was widely credited with fomenting French nationalism, and in times of great duress, the French turned to talismans of her for luck. In the First World War, her image was a symbol for French troops, and they took it with them into battle. In 1920, she became Saint Joan of Arc at a canonization ceremony that drew 60,000 people. They even had descendants of her family in attendance, which, how amazing is that? It only took 500 years. Chapter 7, Legends of a Saint. There you have it, listeners. Have you made up your mind about what was really going on with St. Joan of Arc? Mental illness obviously existed in the Middle Ages. Just look at the Glass King. But it's kind of unfair to put a modern diagnosis on what was going on with Jean. Schizophrenia and hallucinations are the most common diagnoses. And I've read that the stress of puberty and hormone imbalances alone are enough to cause that, but we also need to think about the trauma she had seen with her village getting burned to the ground, and we also need to take into account that it was pretty common at the time for people claiming to be seers to have prophetic visions and messages. She definitely stood out, and people thought it odd that a teenage peasant girl was making the claim she was, but it also wasn't so uncommon or abstract that they didn't come around to it. We'll never know what exactly was going on with her, but my two favorite theories are either that it was 100% supernatural and exactly as she said, or that she made the whole thing up because she wanted to join the war effort and she saw the Maid of Lorraine prophecy as a way to exploit that and join the army. Like that to me is even more amazing. I don't know though, listeners, I'd love to hear your theories, but let's get to recommendations. First off, the biography I turned to for this episode was Joan of Arc, A History by Helen Castor. There are several TV documentaries based on this book. 
I will warn you that it takes a long time to even get to Joan's story, but the extended explanation of the Hundred Years' War got me very interested in that rabbit hole. This is definitely an expansive look at her life, and if you're into nonfiction, you'll want to get on that. For some good podcast tellings of Joan of Arc's story, there were two that I really enjoyed from podcasts I'd never heard before. First off, there's a two-part series on Joan from the show Our Fake History. They look at legends and find where the truth is. If you felt confused during my explanation of the Hundred Years' War, definitely listen to this one because I think they did a great job of concisely explaining it. The other one I really liked was simply titled Joan of Arc by the show Occult Confessions. This one was fun. Like, you'll have a laugh and a good time listening to it. I think it's put on by students and one of them might be a professor. I wasn't totally clear on that, but they call themselves the alchemical actors and their show is all about the history of witches, magicians, you know, all things supernatural. They're funny and they sort of act out some of the parts of the story as they're giving you the history lesson. I subscribed. I really enjoyed it. So check out their show. Moving on to fiction. You're in luck because there are a lot of historical fictions about Joan of Arc. The problem I ran into, however, was that all the libraries are closed. So if your library doesn't have a book for download, either audio or for an e-reader, you have to buy it. As such, the only fiction I was able to get my hands on was The Maid by Kimberly Cutter. This was your straight historical fiction coming at you from Jean's eyes, and it was well-written and kind of makes the events I just told you about more exciting. In this book, her father is a real jerk, and I think that it kind of allows you to see other reasons outside of the religious that may have motivated the real Jean on her mission. One that I was very interested in was called Language of Fire, Joan of Arc Reimagined by Stephanie Hemphill. If you've been listening since the beginning, or if you just happened to hear my episode on Mary Shelley, this is the same author who wrote Hideous Love, which was about Mary Shelley's life as seen from her eyes. This book, like Hideous Love, is written in verse. I'll probably get around to reading it at some point after COVID is under a bit more control. Second, here's one that may surprise you. Prior to books written about her in the last few decades was a historical fiction written by none other than Mark Twain. Mark Twain's daughter loved the story of Joan of Arc and got her famous writer father on board. He actually told many people that his Joan of Arc novel was his very best work. It's called The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, and you're in luck because this one you can read on Project Gutenberg. Link will be in the show notes. Alrighty, this brings us to movies. In 1999, Joan of Arc was having a moment, and there were several movies made about her. First was a miniseries starring Lily Sobieski as Joan. I was 14 years old, and I did not like it. I tried to rewatch it now that I'm an adult, and unfortunately, this one is hard to find. I think you can only get it on DVD now. I'm not sure that it's streaming anywhere. There are some clips on YouTube that you can watch if you're interested. I was hoping to view it as an adult to see if it's better than I thought it was at the time, now that I actually know the history. But what can you do? The one I was able to come back to was The Messenger, which I mentioned at the beginning. The Messenger also came out in 1999, and this is another example of baby Jen's parents not seeming to care what movies I watched because violence and rape within the first five minutes. Those trigger warnings aside, a few things. First, I really like this movie. I've watched it many times. I was very into The Fifth Element, and I didn't realize this as a kid, but other than the main actress being the same, both movies also had the same director, which is probably more the reason I was so drawn. I actually found The Messenger to be fairly accurate. Like, 
yeah, things were exaggerated and they were on a much faster clock because it's a two hour movie, but they used a lot of dialogue from her trials. And in terms of Mila Jovovich's performance, I saw a lot of reviews irritated that she was overacting and too melodramatic. Like, sure. But also I felt that was in line with how fanatical Joan actually was. Joan was a fanatical Catholic. Just because she's considered a hero doesn't change that. So I thought the acting was actually in line with that. Now, the thing I really liked about this movie, apart from the cinematography, is that they really show you the problematic parts of Joan's story. Was she really on a mission from God or was she bloodthirsty? They bring it up a lot. And what was interesting is during her trial, she's visited by what I assume is either her conscience or death wrapped up in a Dustin Hoffman package. And they do flashbacks to earlier scenes in the movie and show how certain scenes and situations could have been interpreted more than one way. Finally, you've got John Malkovich as Charles VII. And when is John Malkovich ever not good? Never. Never is the answer. All right. That's what I have for you on Joan of Arc this week. Visit the show notes for links to more and also a link to join the book club discussion group. Remember, May 13th, that's when we're discussing wife after wife. If you're not doing anything right now, consider leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts so we can beat that algorithm and help others find the show. And join me next week as we take a deeper look at Isabeau of Bavaria and the king who is made of glass. (laughs) 